The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime! Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. A wonderful show for you tonight, so jump in that comfy chair, kick your feet back, as always. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of choice. Now, our guest tonight, I feel like I've watched our guest tonight grow up before my eyes on the screen. <laughs> he starred in his dad's Oliver Stone's films, The Doors, JFK, Natural Born Killers, and Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, before becoming a director in his own right with Greystone Park. Now, the movie was based on Stone's experience of exploring haunted mental asylums. Yeah, Sean Stone's our guest tonight with his new book, New World Order. Sean has done great work, folks, with Save the Children in Somalia and the gang prevention program Unity One for Jim Brown's Amer I Can group in Los Angeles. Stone currently co-hosts the RT News show, Watching the Hawks, which airs internationally. It is my great pleasure to welcome Sean to the show for the very first time, but most definitely not the last time. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you, Brent. Thanks for being really here. appreciate you having me. Night Fright. That's, I, I love it. That's like my, that's my kind of night. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you mention that because as we record this show, tonight is November 8th, folks, 2016. The outcome of the American election is not decided yet between Hillary Clinton and, of course, Donald Trump. The fate remains unknown at this point as we record this at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. Sean, in a few days, November 22nd is going to be upon us, the anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. Sean, many people feel today that both candidates, Hillary and Trump, are completely unworthy to sit in the seat Jack sat. Do you feel we might be dealing with the consequences of that assassination, November 22nd, 1963, of JFK? Well, I mean, I don't know about in this present moment being more of a, what you say, is this fire? Than previous moments, it's an interesting question. And maybe we'll compare the overall mood, especially vis-a-vis -vis the Russians, to the Cuban Missile Crisis, because there is uh, this looming threat of world war. And honestly, I think a lot of the hysteria around the elections has uh, distracted the fact that Obama has led us to this break of war with the Russians. 
Um, let's get into very it. much. Let's talk about how you feel Obama's led us to the brink of a global meltdown, if you will, nuclear war. Ted Sorensen, JFK speechwriter, was a friend of mine, and uh, I sat with him in his Manhattan apartment, and he walked us through the Cuban Missile Crisis and how close we really, really were so that we're able to sit here today. So I'd be interested in seeing the parallels between where we were and how we scraped by and got through that and how you feel the parallels remain today. Yes, yes. Uh, well, obviously, it's not a clear cut incident. I mean, you've, we've heard reports of 300,000 uh, troops, NATO troops being prepared for potential war with Russia. We've got Russian ships coming down through the, uh, was it sort of the channel around, close to England toward the English North channel, Sea, right? right? Yeah. Um, Mediterranean. Yeah. On their way to Syria. But, uh, but, as far as uh, you know, any one incident, we can't point to yet one incident that is you know Cuban Missile Crisis moment. But I would just say that on the whole, you have broiling situation where ever since Ukraine, where there was this coup d'état you know against the Ukrainian government backed by you know the National Endowment for Democracy and the State Department and the people you know Tory New like this, right? The point is that. Since then, there has been a continuous escalation uh, against the Russians, and mainly over the Syria conflict. So, even if you want to say, which I don't disagree with, that you know, is Putin authoritarian? You know, is he uh, potentially trying to, you know, re, re empower the Russian, you know, state? Absolutely. Um, why is that such a problem for America? Well, because America's playing the British game. You know, if you really want to get into the roots of this, you got to go back. You got to go back to the, the world order concept in the book, which is the Anglo-American Empire, which is the British game, the British game in the Middle East that's been going on for over a hundred years, long before America got involved, and that the British are still playing, and we have fallen into that um, modality of empire with the British. Okay, let's go back to its roots then. Where do you feel it started? With the Versailles Treaty, or do you think it started way before that? Uh, you know, in terms of the New World Order concept that I can speak to, I don't know about, you know, the British Empire roots obviously go back hundreds of years. You know, frankly, uh, they go back, some people say, even to sorcery. And John Dee, who was a, the court uh, intelligence, basically was the head intelligence officer for Queen Elizabeth's court, he was also a practicing occultist whom some have alleged was involved in summoning spirits and creating, and actually creating uh uh, relationships with gins or genies to empower the British Empire because the sinking of the Spanish Armada in '88 was miraculous. The Spanish Armada was the greatest in the world. They had the money, they had the gold of the Americas behind them. This was a tremendous empire, and frankly, a storm helped wipe them out in 1588 to empower the British to now become the champions of the sea. These the sea routes were the key maritime trade and merchant uh, economy was the trade for Britain, you know, uh, was the power of the British Empire from 1588 forward to make them this tremendous empire all the way through the 19th century. So there is this question of where, you know, the exact moment of the birth of the British Empire, but you might say 1588 was a critical moment for them. Now, as far as the 20th century, what happens is at the end of the 19th century, the British are looking at their empire, which basically encompasses a quarter, somewhere between one quarter and one third of the world's land mass. 
Okay. And it's peoples from Africa to Asia to, you know, a little bit in Latin America, not really Latin America. It's really, you know, they have a few call a little bit of colony there, but really it's mostly uh, uh, Africa, Asia, Australia, the Commonwealth, what become the Commonwealth countries, the Dominions, right? Canada. Of Canada, well, um, India at that time was still British. So they're looking at this. Yeah, and they're looking at this empire, and they're saying, "Well, she's after the Boers, you know, against the Boers in South Africa." And they're saying, "Look, you know, how do we maintain this? Because it's a white man's burden, but we can't maintain it. the white population is not large enough to, to subjugate all the peoples of the planet. So we have to incorporate them. We have to feel, make them feel like they're part of it, and we have to rebrand the empire as the Commonwealth, right? And start to give certain dominion to other." You know, Anglo peoples. You know, like like the, the South Africans run by uh, run by by Anglo Anglo Saxons in South Africa by blacks. Um, Canada, uh, Ireland. You know, uh, Australia. They can they can have a home rule status within the Dominions, but we get out of basically brand the empire. And uh, Cecil Rhodes is a major thinker in that regard. He basically calls for incorporating America into this. Rebranded British Empire, and Rose is famous because he's basically the founder of the Beers. He he uh, had built, uh, consolidated all these diamond mines in South Africa, South Africa. Yeah. working with Rothschild. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lord Rothschild was his bank. So he basically wanted to reincorporate America into his empire, the new empire, and he had bequeathed his wealth to uh, uh, the Rhodes Trust as part of that strategy was to. Uh, integrate through education the uh, the various countries of the Commonwealth, including America, and ultimately move towards what H.G. Wells and others who basically were disseminating the same the same uh, ideology of the roundtable groups. Now there was dissent, but ultimately the strategy was we need to basically make our empire a global thing, breaks the different people, the colored peoples, and you know the, the various uh, nationalities into the empire through education and economics, right? But to ultimately move towards this unified global state. That was the ultimate end goal. Whether or not it would be British, controlled, or a federal. What was the ultimate goal of British imperialism? Well, you know, what has imperialism always been? It's not the British. It's, you know, it goes back before them to the Venetians. It goes to the Romans. It goes to the Persians. It's always a question of uh, land, accessing uh, res- uh, real estate, mm-hmm. natural resources, uh, slavery in a certain form, but basically keeping a, a basic, uh, say, an economic control structure of, a, of, a, of most people in an emaciated, an non-emancipated form, basically being either debt, debt slaves or physical slaves, right, who can work property on behalf of the aristocracy or the landed ruling class and then they're the bankers that ultimately issue the credit through the central banks right um those the power structures and the temple oftentimes behind it right the temple is one of the mechanisms by which the uh you know the ruling class can uh, can maintain their authority as a spiritual integrity of an empire so you know, whether the British Empire's ambition, let's say, at the time was to perpetuate itself. I mean, they were still, uh, at the time, you know, they were obviously part of them. Some of them were race patriots. Some of them felt the Anglo-Saxon race was the greatest in the world. Yeah. 
and see you know the English race prevail upon the planet. But others like H.G. Wells, who were the, the real hardcore New World Order advocates, said, look, we don't care if it's the British or any nation that ultimately prevails as the greatest power. We simply want a consolidation of power, and it's going to transcend all races, and it's ultimately going to be derived really from a financial governmental center of bureaucrats and technocrats, right, financiers who control the apparatus. And the more of a new world order type of thing, or sorry, brave new world type of thing, brave where um, right. you know it's basically being run by you know a scientific dictatorship, right? That goes beyond Botanica. spiritual, yeah, beyond religious or spiritual inclinations, more into this realm of uh, science, you know, Darwinian sort of Darwinian you know, evolutionary science of you know, let's say the genetic hierarchy, the ones who are most fit to rule, they are the ones that prevail ultimately. Sean, do you feel overall that yeah. the advent of imperialism only had the one goal, and that was to obtain wealth on the backs of the impoverished? Or do you feel that there was, a, to coin a popular phrase, a new world order to try and raise education amongst the world? I'll give you an example. In Canada, we're a British colonial country. Wherever the British seemed to go, they, they raised education, they built universities, they built infrastructure, sewers. We, we saw the fact that the infant mortality rate would lower as well. Do you think that was part of it as well? Well, no, no doubt that the empire, you, you know, this argument now, Ferguson obviously, you know, makes, he's saying the empire did these tremendous things, right? It was right. able to build uh, train, train railroads and roads and it you know did lower the infant mortality to a certain extent in certain areas the problem is because Canada was a colony as well <clears throat> kind of like Australia in a different mode of operating than, than for example like an African that when uh, when FDR went to um, West Africa for example and he saw the remnants of the British Empire there he said look this is you're basically just extracting the resources on the backs of the people, and your rail systems are only designed to extract the resources. You know, let's let's put money into the pockets of the one percent that rule the country. Let's educate them and make them feel as though you know they're empowered with our system, and basically ignore the ninety-five percent of the population that's just you know cut out from the benefits, the rewards. So there is this problem of colonial of empire in general, which is, I believe, extractive. It's not about empowering the people locally and education on most of the time major aspect of this book is to understand that education is tied in integrally to the intelligence services are training the next generation of leaders for that country for in the political spectrum and the economic spectrum right in the major business and finance and and uh, uh you know foundations and cultural leaders they're coming from the major universities so it's a form of warfare on the young to educate them because whose education are you learning you're learning that of the victors, right, of the ones who write the history. So there's a real problem when it comes to education, <laughs> where, you know, who's teaching you? Who's who's writing your books? Why is it that you have, in our in this book, New World Order, a study of Eliot, who was the, Kissing, the Kissinger's mentor, Eliot's, you know, teaching all of these people at Harvard who then become his disciples in some form or another, and then they're teaching the next generation at, you know, at the Ivy League schools and other colleges. Um, and it's a hub of power. So why is education not disseminated from the perspective of 
people having more homeschooling is catching on. But what's wrong with homeschooling? What's wrong with actually being involved in the creative process and being able to pick up any number of books and rather than being taught, taught in the university setting that's very rigorous and standardized for the most part that doesn't give you access to a to an actual to a greater creative endeavor than what they teach you than tell you you have to know this to get your degree recite facts back to us to get your degree right www.nightfrightshow.com folks there you will find sean stone's book a new world order a strategy of imperialism just click on tonight's guest book cover it'll take you right to a spot where you can order it from the comfort of your own home where'd you to get it it's got some very interesting ideas and a different spin on what is known as the new world order and one of the questions i have for you is the new world order a conspiracy theory is there some cabal out there that wants to run every what? single human being in the world right no and that's what's that's what's really integral to this this project was that it came out of my thesis work because I had discovered, as I mentioned, I was studying Eliot, um, who was this professor emeritus at Harvard. He taught uh, Trudeau, for example, Pierre, uh, yeah, Pierre, Elliot, Pierre Trudeau, whose son is now our prime minister. Yes, yes, <laughs> minister. Yeah, he's a good guy. I mean, these people are all evil, and that's one thing I want to be clear with is that I think there are a lot of positive intentions behind him the New World Order, in, in the sense that they see themselves as disseminating a system of, look, they're saying, look, our traditions of economics, our traditions of law and order, um, our customs, are, they're, 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 they think they're the, the best in the world. Now, that, that's arguable. I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit uh, supremacist to think that way. But they actually, you know, they, they had, there was a tremendous tradition of legality and legal structures and you know, and this helps. itself can be argued. Democracy itself, Parliament, democracy can be argued Absolutely. that it came from the Britons. So, Britain. right, exactly. Parliamentary system and things like this. So they're saying we have this tremendous tradition, and we want to be the basis for the new world order. Now that word, new that phrase, new world order, is not a conspiracy theory because it was their own phrase. And that was when I was right. I was writing about Eliot. I was coming across this phrase, and it was whether it was in the 1920s. And 30s, so it wasn't a conspiracy theory. New World Order is their own language. Let's look at how they were using it, what they meant by it, trying to understand better what their thinking is without going into the speculative things about more esoteric aspects, the secret societies, the right. you know the nature of the, of the reality they're trying to create, the technocracy, technocratic you know bureaucracies. That's the aspect I want to get across tonight to folks is that. When you examine history, you've got to look at all different aspects. You can't just read one book. You have to read opposing views and all views in the middle and come up with your own ideas. You know, you don't have to be spoon-fed and, and be able to regurgitate whatever you're, you're taught. You can actually form your own ideas, as Sean has in his book. This is a pretty good example for the students that are out there that watch this show. You can do this. You can read pe uh, other people's works integrate them in your own lives and come up with your own ideas and push forward society. Now, do you feel that these things are written out and planned, or do you think that they just kind of evolve? I'll give you an example. Everybody's demonizing the Bilderbergers, and with good reason. It's a secret society, quote-unquote. But I had Heather Reisman on the show. Heather Reisman owns um, yeah. the... I'm not sure if you know who she is, but just for the folks who don't, she owns... Chapters Indigo, which is our version, Canada's version of Barnes Noble. Now, she gets a lot of flack for a lot of other reasons, but 
her and I put a show on because there was a woman over in Iran who was about to be stoned to death. And we put a show on together. She instigated the show. She initiated it. And we were able to save that woman's life. So she's not all bad is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> she has good intentions. She wants to lower the poverty level everywhere around the world. She wants to do good. And she thinks by getting together with like-minded people, with the power to do it, the money in other words, that she will do some good and leave some kind of legacy that will better mankind. Do you yeah. feel much the same way? But yet, every time we seem to do something, the, the negative consequences are always ever-present. Well, certainly. I mean, you have to recognize there'll be a certain paranoia about people with tremendous amounts of money, influence, and access coming together. Mm -hmm. um, because policies that we see, you know, coming out of uh, countries, I mean, from east to west, doesn't matter where, are corrupt. They're oftentimes military and, and militaristic. They're oftentimes... Um, you know, working, let's say, like, you know, you take a country like America. Uh, I'm putting out a documentary next week called A Century of War. We talk about how uh, America is the most dead of any one in the world, basically, as citizens, right? We're, we're crippled by our debts. But it used to be a blue-collar industrial economy that paid solid wages that now, you know, man, once working man can't afford a family of four, as he could in 1970, the salaries are not, the minimum wage is lower in comparison. You know, if you compare real wages, it's lower. Um, so we have to take out more credit card debt. Um, so on one hand, we have this freedom of we can purchase and choose things, but at the same time, we're we're in you know we're in we're in deeper debt to have this lifestyle, right? Yeah. Um, we've seen our America. We're seeing you know we're we're seeing a lot of we're seeing rioting and protesting, and it comes from a place of anger and, and feeling there's there's a very bleak, uh, nihilistic mood that's taking over. Right. I mean, look, Trump speaks to that. There's a reason half the country, almost half the country, you know, is responding to him, not because he's necessarily the most educated on evolving it, but he's certainly speaking to that feeling. Um, so, you know, you take him, you know, you take that and you say, well, why is it that our, our you know, that these, you know, businessmen, people that have the money and influence are buying the politicians and influencing them. Why aren't they the best thing in our country? Why are they not, not putting resources and, you know, how do you say, working to improve uh, the state of living in our country? They seem to be more interested in exploiting uh, cheap labor abroad and getting access, you know, to, to foreign markets and, you know, depending on this, this petrol or economy to keep, you know, petroleum basically is keeping the dollar as strong as it is. We have this massive military presence all over the globe for what? For, you know, a few thousand terrorists. I mean, it's insane. In Syria, we're literally backing the terror groups. I mean, that's, you know, the defense intelligence agency said in 2012 that, you know, the, the, the Salafists basically are the ones who are mostly, you know, opposed to Assad. They tend to be more radical right wing, um, not right wing, but will be considered, you know, radical jihadists. They're backed by the Saudis and, you know, and Qataris and all these countries and America supporting them. So how can we say that these, these, these people who are so wealthy and powerful and influential, are they really doing things to benefit mankind or to benefit their own self-interest and their own, you know, you wouldn't just say greed, but desire to maintain an empire? And a corporate empire, you know, that's the, that's a danger to me. It's like these transnational corporations have no allegiance to a country. They have no stake in a country. They don't pay taxes. They go offshore as much as possible. And they find loopholes. And right now, the system of power, we're in a hierarchy where it's a pyramid structure that people want to go with success. The superstar culture, where it's like, you know, the corporate superstar culture is like, oh, the corporations have, have the most success, get the most 
Sean Stone's our guest tonight, folks. The book is called New World Order, A Strategy of Imperialism, www.nightfrightshow.com. As always, just click on tonight's guest book cover. We'll take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. Sean, I want to go back to Syria. Wave a magic wand, and all of a sudden you're running for president tonight, and you get elected. What would be your policy? How would you handle Syria? Canada's already taken in 30,000 refugees. I bleed every night for those young kids and the innocents over there. What would your perspective be? What would your strategy be over there? Well, you know, unfortunately, my strategy would be to um, immediately cut ties with, well, immediately cut ties with as much as possible. I mean, you have to say, I would would say immediately. I would work to cut ties with the Saudis. I would basically work to see them play, you know, with a more Republican or Democratic uh, regime. I would basically, you know, cut them off as rulers. I think you have to make Arabia, Arabia was not always Saudi Arabia, you see Arabia, right? The Saudis are Wahhabists, they're very, they're fanatical in their understanding of the religion of Islam, various understandings of Islam that do lead to the Taliban and ISIS understanding of it. But those are perversions of terrorism. That's not true Islam. That is a perversion of Islam. It's like, in my opinion, it's like saying the KKK represents Christianity. It's it's nonsense. The Saudi version of Islam. And they're unfortunately, because of their wealth, they're purveying this this ideology that's leading to these these extreme terror groups and the ones who are, but like, let's be honest, a lot of these terrorists are being utilized by intelligence services to destabilize countries for operational purposes. So I would shift that, you know, away from the Saudi ideology and I'd basically work with the Russians in Syria. Assad is, is going to stay in power. you got to get the country back, at least to some stability again. He actually had the biggest middle class in the middle of Middle East. People in the New York, New York Times admitted that in the 2000s, Syria had the biggest middle class in the Middle East, but hey, no one remembers that now because it's destroyed. The sectarian situation in Iraq is bad. I don't know exactly. You know, I'd have to look at what you do there unless you find ways of elevating the overall, you know, economy, right? The point is that even though Saddam was a bad guy, sure, but he practiced socialism, a certain level of, you know, of education, a certain understanding that you, you know, he didn't care about your ethnic differences because the economy was at least stable, let's say, until we started the whole, you know, embargoes and that did hurt them. But more people are in situations of desperation, the more ethnic, racial, religious warfare. You know, it's just clear. I mean, we see it, whether it's America with slavery, you know, any country that you see falling into that kind of warfare, it's because the economy is collapsing. When people are in good times, when everyone has a job, they all trade, they go to the market, they don't care if it's a Jew, a Muslim, a, you know, Turk, whatever. It's like, they all, you know, we're all out there doing with each other because we, we want to ultimately we want peace, and peace comes with economy. That's what it boils down to. So yeah, I think you have that to. Brings me back to uh, something that I wanted to talk to you about: is the free market system? Do you think it's sustainable in this day and age? I'll give you an example. We've gone through tribalism in the world, monarchy, socialism, communism, capitalism. I think capitalism is done, and I always say now we've got to move beyond and find a newism, something called humanism, because I feel capitalism serves itself. It's all about yeah. the bottom line. There's no humanity associated with it at all. We know communism doesn't work, socialism doesn't work. We've seen the examples of that. We've tried that. I think we yeah. have to try something else. Well, uh, capitalism's not dead, but I do think that it has to look. There's different forms of a capitalism, right? There, there is, a, when you study the American history, it, what's been washed from history is what's called the, the American system of economics, which is 
emphasizes that notion of a harmony of interests. The Henry Ford perspective that I want my workers to have decent wages because guess what? They're going to turn around and buy my products. Exactly right. Factory owners, do you like you know paying your workers? I said, but yeah, because then you know we have vacation. Why why shouldn't they have vacation? Then we can you know when we work together. You know, everyone is more happy, less, you know, less stressed. You know, we, we get along as a human. There's a harmony yeah. that exists within our workplace because we understand that, we, you know, we all, we're all human. We have to relate to each other as human beings. We have to work together. We don't have to look at each other as, you know, as, as a hierarchy where it's like, you know, you have to basically get on your knees and do the whole, you know, rise of the totem pole by, you know, taking it and being raped along the way. That was your dad's theme in both so, Wall Street and Wall Street Money Never Sleeps. Exactly that. The ultimate goal is, is of course, yeah. when labor and management can work in harmony. And there are ways to do that. There's no yeah, question. Exactly. So there is this, you know, this tradition that needs to be forgot about. We have cut out of the economic books from education earlier, and education is so powerful because this system got lost and it was replaced by the British imperial systems, which is uh, communism and Adam Smith, you know, free market economics. But both of those are British models, and the American model was, was, has been cut out of the history. You're, gonna, you're talking about free markets. I just want to read a quote from the book, folks, and the book is called New World Order, uh, Strategy of Imperialism, as I reach around here. Okay, I'm going to do this. This is from the book, folks. This is a direct quote. Milton Friedman at the Rockefeller-founded University of Chicago, who was committed to the principles that, quote, Governments must remove all rules and regulations standing in the way of the accumulation of profits. Second, they should sell off any assets they own that corporations could be running for profit. And third, they should dramatically cut back funding of social programs. In short, and quite unabashedly, he was calling for the breaking of the New Deal. Now, that's Naomi Klein's book as well, folks, uh, mentions that. Now, this is exactly what I think is the problem. I mean, we have to have a social safety net. Here in Canada, we are blessed because we have Medicare. It's not free. We pay taxes for it. Everybody says, so. Oh, it's free Medicare. What the point is, I'll give you a good example why this is so beneficial and essential to have programs like this. In 1963, my dad died of a heart attack. That was before Medicare came in. But he would have had to pay for it, and money was tight. If he had have been in an era of Medicare, he would not have hesitated to go to the hospital. So this is coming back to the humanism aspects of things. This is something I would like to see America lead the way again with. Do you feel much the same way? <laughs> Do you feel that? But as I'm saying, I mean, there is a harmony of interests. And yeah. That when, you know, my documentary I mentioned a century of war because it picks up really with New, when New World Order leaves off, which is the idea of their attacking the nation states, right? And the process of attacking the nation states, we've seen America become this military branch of the British Empire and, uh, and work on, you know, work towards this clash of civilizations concept, which. You know, ultimately, I don't know if it's, it seems like it's designed to, you know, consolidate all people's own uh, monoculture, which is to say, you know, let's destroy any indigenous cultures, let's destroy anyone that's peripheral on the periphery of the empire, doesn't want to uh, exceed to financial 
instruments like the IMF and the World Bank and the central banks of the West, right? Or, or else, you know, they're culturally opposed, like oftentimes to Islam. You'll see culturally, cultural opposition. Unless people buy it, that's, it makes it good. So if people buy McDonald's democratically, they're choosing McDonald's, right? If people buy Nike, you know, that, that's democratic choice, right? The problem, of course, is you don't have any safety net deforestation to, to get cattle grazing land. It's, you know, very easy to have a toxic food or environment that uh, people, you know, the corporation can, can, can get away with. So whether McDonald's or Nike, you know, employing people in, you know, in sweatshops, basically near slave labor, there's no protection of them. At the same time, we say, well, people buy Nike, and so they're choosing Nike, and so, you know, that's that's good. It doesn't matter if there's a moral, if there's a morality or any kind of ethic to that cooperation. It's only about the profits, the bottom line. So in terms of this, this uh, you know, make world, it's like then in opposition, they, they create this whole notion of, well, jihad is, you know, is basically the uh, inhibiting our access to these markets, right? The uh, the, the Muslim, you know, uh, austerity or Muslim uh, uh, spiritual inclination, or not just Muslim, right? it's any indigenous culture that has a spiritual inclination or a relationship to uh, traditions, frankly, would be perceived as the enemy, you know. Uh, but right now, Islam is actually a very particular foe of the Western world, but it's not done. It's not. We have to. We can't say it out outright. It has to be done, you know, surreptitiously. So you utilize your allies, and you, you know, destabilize in Iraq or Libya or, you know, now Syria. Uh, um, next, who knows? Maybe in Iran or Iran will get bought into the IMF system with this new deal, right? For the um, the nuclear deal, it seems that the IMF and the World Bank will then access Iran. So gradually they'll work it. You know, basically, they'll start to sell their goods and their products. And again, I'm I'm all for trade between countries, but it has to be done, you know, from a perspective of fair trade. The fact is, you know, countries should not be forced to open their doors and say, the IMF, you know, IMF conditionality state, you have to, um, you know, basically pay us back, uh, the World Bank back on these loans. So the IMF conditionality say you have to basically shut down your your, your social welfare programs or you know. Cut, you know, cut your uh, tariffs to zero, or you name it, right? The whole point is that's conditionality, that's slavery. I believe in fair trade, okay? You, you have something, you know, America doesn't produce certain things, we should, you know, be able to trade. And if, you know, if America produces cars and Japanese produce cars, then we should have tariffs and say, look, if we like your product, they should be more comparable in price. And it's simply because your product delivers different values that I choose it, but it shouldn't be because, you, you know, I can get your car five grand, but meanwhile, it's gonna, it's gonna crush into a tin can in an accident. You know, that's that, that's that's not the way you protect America. You have to have tariffs. I mean, just America, any country, you have to have tariffs to protect your economy and your workers and your manufacturing. The way that the Europeans have the VAT, right, the value added, added taxes, mm-hmm. and it's just it's sensible. You know, so the idea is that there's there's still like yeah, there's a certain competition in price, but the problem with free trade is that it leads to the biggest corporation, the biggest fish gobbling up the other fish. I want to jump in a bit of a different direction, if it's okay with you. You brought up Islam, and I feel that Islam is getting um, a hard knock, if you will, from the Western world. Now, would you be comfortable about talking about your visit to Estevan? Yeah, sure. Okay, so can you tell us that story, what happened in Estevan for you, and what was the result of that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, for example, when it comes to Islam, I have a certain understanding of it, frankly, um, having uh, not just read the Quran, but also visited um, Iran a few times, three times. And uh, when I went to Islam, 
um, I accepted, you know, I accepted uh, Muhammad as a prophet, and that technically makes me a Muslim. So I always found this very interesting, quirky, um, under you know, concept in terms of religion, is that you know, personally, I never grew up with any religion per se. I'm someone who believes that religion is very political, and I've always embraced all religions as a true, uh, how do you say, as 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 true path, different variations of true path, right? There's one creator, I believe, yeah. and I believe yeah. that, you know, Islam is a continuation of the Judeo-Christian tradition, and so to recognize Muhammad as a prophet, if I'm not mistaken, a Muslim. I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, it says in the Quran that there's as many ways to come to God as there is people in the world. In other words, everybody has their own personal connection with God. That's so right. it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. I mean, there's, in, in Islam, they say there are 99 names for God because there really should not be one name. There should be many names. And so people say, oh, Allah is God. It's like, well, no, actually, it's one creator. Yeah. And so when I, you know, again, so I read the Quran, I, I take it from my interpretation. And I felt, you know, this is this is a continuation of the Judeo-Christian tradition. So Muhammad, I believe, is a prophet of that same tradition. And, uh, and I accept him as a prophet. Well, that makes me a Muslim. So, you know, when I, when I said this, I accepted this, then it became, you know, a stir. I know Sean is uh, now a Muslim or something. And it's like, it, it, miss, it misses the point, which is, A, I think Muslim's religion is very much a personal uh, path. It's frankly, it should be personal. I think many of the problems we have in religion now are trying to externalize and politicize their own your own uh, creator. And I don't try. You know, I think that even in Islam, it's like you're not supposed to. Uh, it says you know basically you're you're not. There is no compulsion in religion. There shouldn't you should not compul You know, should not force anyone into a path of religion. When it comes to ethics, we have ethics. There are oftentimes ethics are based in religious principles. Right. I go back to the mosaic um, about organizing and how we as people recognize and respect each other but you know too much of the political strife in the world has you know has boiled down to these religious differences and i just say look each one of those paths is your personal path and i respect that path and it's about you following your spiritual journey here because i think you know for me life is not a physical reality it's a spiritual reality so you have to have a faith and a create in something that's going to keep you alive your spirit going and in believing in something that's going to happen you know either even before you came here but also after you die you're going to move on somewhere else so mm -hmm. as long as you don't use it and abuse it to um, to harm others you know religion is a beautiful thing but it gets corrupted and you know I'm very sensitive to that that danger um, but you know I try to understand and study the religions as much as possible and basically see how we can bridge the misunderstandings to come to those common cores of, as you say, humanism. The idea is that, yes, we are all created from the same source. We have different colors in different lands, in different traditions, different languages. But yet we have a common creator recognizing the similarities and this, you know, how these different faiths and different understandings actually do correlate. And let's, let's you know, let's embrace and celebrate our similarities and also our differences. You know, there's no, nothing wrong with having uh, every different color rainbow. That's what makes the rainbow more beautiful. When you were in Iran, did you pick up any Farsi? Well, no, I, I don't. I don't really know Farsi at all. I was going to say salam to Tori, but that's okay. Folks, I just want to tell you that the Persian Empire also. Um, you're going to know King Cyrus. He's in the uh, the Torah, the Jewish Bible, and Old Testament, if you will. King Cyrus was unique. He brought in the first Declaration of Human Rights. Yeah. 
Persian Empire. Persians are not Arabs, yeah. they're different people. It's like saying um, Italians and Greeks are the same people. They're different people. The Persian Empire goes back thousands and thousands of years. So if you want to do some research about human rights, this is where it all comes from, right there, the Persian Empire. I just want to read this part. The Mahdi is the prophesied redeemer of Islam who will rule for seven or maybe 19 years, according to different interpretations. Now, before the day of judgment, and will rid the world of evil, according to Islamic tradition, the Mahdi's tenure will coincide with the second coming of, guess who? Jesus. So when I hear Christians say, Islam is evil, they're out to kill us, let me read that part again. The Mahdi's tenure will coincide with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And they will fight together to bring peace on the world. So I think it's important to talk about this, and I'm glad you, you consented to talk about your newfound beliefs with the audience. Because my audience, I'll tell you, Sean, is primarily students. What I try to do is inspire them and get them to think for themselves. I'd like to switch yes. back now. We started well, off with JFK. I want to go back to the movie JFK when you were just little. <laughs> you were so cute, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> in the movie, <laughs> what happened? And now you're tall, you're hairy. <laughs> I say that to my nephews too, don't worry. They go to, one goes to Stafford, and that's where I got the cup from. Okay, in the movie JFK, you play Kevin Costner's character, Jim Garrison's son. At one point, yeah. you ask Kevin, Daddy, do we have to go away because of Kennedy? Now, I want you to put yourself in a father position, and if your child asked you that, do we have to go away because of whoever wins the presidency tonight? What would you say to your child? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not scared of Trump. I really, uh, yeah, I, really I didn't say any names. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, folks, the borders are still open to Canada. You're all welcome. Uh, uh, you know, there's a script that's that's unfolding, and if 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 there is you know if there is a collapse kind of function that's supposed to occur regarding the economy and regarding the civil war scenario, we certainly seen that we've seen a lot of the predictive uh, conditioning, predictive programming in the media and film and uh, TV around that concept. Then yeah, maybe Trump would usher that in, in which case that's just part of the script. Um, Hillary wins, and we, you know, we continue with this cold war with Russia. Maybe it escalates even worse, and you know, the Syria situation in the Middle East just continues to devolve for the next, you know, four years. Um, then that's part of the script. Uh, I would, you know, again, I, it would be nice to see one of these guys step up. You know, Hillary's talked about exposing UFOs. I would love it. You know, she did that. Um, Trump's talking about exposing conspiracies like 9/11. You know what? That'd be awesome if he came in and did that. So. You got to look at the situation and say, just like anything, New World Order has two meanings. You know, there's the there's the dark lead and there's the positive of saying, hey, maybe as as we come together, we do wake up and become conscious human beings and recognizing we are more similar than different, and stop being afraid of each other, and we overcome that fear. Then, hey, you know, it can be the the new day, the sign of the new day of the Illuminati and these guys. That's then that can be a great thing. It doesn't have to be uh, just about their uh, corporate uh, cyber control of us and our brains and the surveillance and the, the now tech that's being used that could be used against us. So 
I always try to stay positive in things, you know. Um, and by the way, when you mentioned Cyrus, just want to point out that Muhammad was recognized by the, by the Supreme Court um, in the 1920s in America as basically as one of the prime lawgivers. And they basically they honored him as a lawgiver, and uh, they basically, you know, were, were giving praise to him as a um, as basically one of these, uh, yeah, one of the lawgivers. In his right, people like Solon and others who come before, and um, and they basically have to remember that he instituted the uh, Constitution of Medina, which in it basically gave the rights to the various religious groups to practice in peace. Right, so it was tolerance was offered in Medina according to the Constitution at the time, and basically gave you know even for pagans, Jews, Christians, exactly. each one respected in their in their right. To worship, so that's a very important point about Muhammad. That of course anyone who says, "Oh, just a bloodthirsty pedophile terrorist," ignores. Yeah, uh, you've got to do your own research, folks, and come to your own conclusions. But you have to look at every side and understand the context and the time as well. So, a couple of more questions. Now, your dad's a war hero, and in, in my eyes, he was wounded in battle. He was in Vietnam. He fought in Vietnam. Did you ever discuss his war experiences amongst yourselves? Uh, sure, sure. I've been, I've been to Vietnam with him. Frankly, we, uh, you know, we went to Vietnam together. He showed me uh, some of the. No, he wasn't. Not exactly. His, he was fighting closer to Cambodia. But um, he would tell me some stories about, you know, we, I went through some of those tunnels and, and to see how, I was shocked by how small Vietnamese are to fit in those, that tunnel system, because they literally had like, you know, their entire home was set up in those, exactly. in, the, in the bunkers and tunnels. They literally had like almost cities built, built like ants, right? And I was trying, I was 13 years old and I was still too big to go inside. I was like amazed at how small these guys must have been. And I'd be done for. <laughs> Okay, quite a serious subject, but I'm going to tell you something. Ted Sorensen, as I said, was my buddy, and he said that Kennedy's perspective on war was honed because he lost his older brother in World War II. Joe Kennedy uh, was on a suicide mission, and, and the mission failed, and also because of what happened to him on PT-109 when his boat was virtually sliced in half. He was repulsed by war. Have you had something like that happen to you because of your conversations with your dad? Or happened to me in what sense? Well, in what has how has your dad's war experience and you sharing that with him by going to Vietnam in conversation? How has that altered your view or created your perspective on war? Oh sure, well sure. I mean, I mean, war is something you know. 9-11 occurred when I was at the end of my, my high school experience, and obviously you know, I could have joined up and said, I'm, you know, I'm going to go and you know fight for my country, and I didn't. You know, I decided, look, it doesn't. I don't buy it. I think that there is there are uh, there is just war. There is a just war when you're immediately threatened. When there is a you know a real enemy that you have to defend you you know your home, your family, your you know your nation against. But these are not just wars. These are extensions of of power for an elite. I think the enemy is closer to home than abroad. I think that uh, you know these are manipulated false flags for the most part that we see, uh, designed to basically put us into a state of fear so that we can be better controlled. Um, so you know, and, and for me, war and fighting is the last thing you want to see. You know, you know, we want to use our words and our minds as much as possible. 
Um, and but there are there are some people that deserve to die. I don't doubt that. I think that their point is, you know, you can be smart about it. You can be smart when you're fighting a war. I would, I like what Kennedy was doing with the Green Berets. It's like you know, you look, you assassinate, you go, you you know, you train and you assassinate and you go for the real criminal components that can't be converted, that can't be uh, negotiated with, that are fanatical, that are you know sociopaths maybe, right? That uh, you have to target those people. Okay. Don't you know, let them influence. I just want to pass on a message. Uh, from, yeah. from Bev Oliver, who's a very good friend of mine. She says, hey. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you remember Bev Oliver. She was the babushka lady in JFK. Her story was made uh, by your dad in the movie JFK, and she tells this wonderful little story, apparently, where you curled up in her lap and fell asleep when you were little. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's just what she told me. So she says, hey. Right. Okay. So, moving right along, where do you see the world going? Um, <laughs> where do I see the world going? I mean, we're in a quagmire right now, uh, like never before. I'm an optimist. I believe you. It, to me, I'm an alchemist, I guess, in spirit. You know, alchemy is the idea that we're going to transform land into gold, that we go through the dark out of the soul. We have to go through the darkness. This world is, is hell, and there's a lot of suffering and pain here, and yet we have to find the spiritual salvation and not looking for someone else to save you. I mean, I, and that's why I don't agree with a lot of people who have a relationship with the Creator, but understand that we are all in this together, and that we are all going through our own education in the process. And whatever occurs, it's for your, it's it's ultimately for your education and for your growth as a human, as a, as a spirit, as a human. But understand that you know you still have things to learn, you still have things to evolve and grow through, and, and understand in the spiritual form. And you know, you should, yeah, of course, it's wonderful to have things in this life, but this is not the you know, next thing you know, you live well. You have a great, you have money and you have power. Next thing you know, you're you're go, you're going through another incarnation as you know, as a suffering, starving, uh, you know, person in in a, in a country that you know you would never want to go near. And you know, you have to go through that incarnation because maybe you were not humble in this existence. I think that's a great way to leave it. You have to go through the dark to see the light. You have to be immersed in dark in order to appreciate the light. Folks, Sean Stone's been our guest tonight, and um, I can't believe an hour's gone by already. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Sean. The book is called, of course, New World Order, A Strategy of Imperialism, www.nightfrightshow.com. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you all for joining us. witness accounts for yours right now nightfrightshow.com